0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode, the first episode of Season 3 of the Burden of Command Podcast. I'm your host, Earl Breon. I really want to take a second here and say I appreciate you all uh, sending me messages through this uh, seasonal break with ideas and things that you'd like to see change in the upcoming season. Good news is uh, the changes uh, were very minimal that you all requested. Uh, and I think you're going to like how we we do things going forward. Uh, what is new? Well, I'm going to keep going without a intro music, uh, but I am going to start doing more of these kind of intro clips. I've got a lot of really great guests coming up this season, uh, ranging on a lot of topics from uh, from fear, which you'll hear today from Dr. Alan Weiss, uh, talking about biases coming up. Um, with uh, Dr. Howard J. Ross. Uh, We're going to cover just a lot of topics. Uh, I hope, and and this is my sincerest hope, that this is going to be, quote, the last season, meaning I'm not going to need to take a break uh, in between. I've got a a good stockpile of guests uh, lined up, and I've got more coming in by the day. And I really attribute that to y'all helping me grow the show. Uh, On that note... You'll notice one of the biggest changes is uh, I have changed the show host. Uh, I am uh, no longer with Podbean, and that's nothing against Podbean. They were fantastic uh, hosts, fantastic customer service. Uh, I've moved to Anchor uh, just because it's got some really neat features that I think uh, I think you all are going to like. Uh, the first one is uh the ability to send me a direct message and send sending me an email, you can send me a direct message uh, on the link. Uh, and I'll put this in the show notes, but on the direct link to uh, to the anchor site for the show, there's just a button here. And you click message and you can record and send me a message. Now, if you're on your mobile phone, uh, you might have to sign up for an account and download the app. Uh, but that gives you the ability to record a voice message, send to me, ask questions, make comments. And the great thing about it is, is I can pull that audio and stick it right into an episode. So you can be very much a participant in the Bird and Command podcast. Uh, the other button that I really like, and uh, I, I do hope you all uh, make use of, is there's a support button. Now, the support button, uh, it, it won't let me use it because I'm the person who, quote, owns the show. Uh, But as I understand it, you click the support button, you're able to make essentially a donation to the show. Now, if you decide to do that, I want to be fully transparent with what that will do. Uh, Obviously, some of that money will have to be set aside to pay taxes on said money because it would count as personal income the way I understand it. Um, But right off the top, whatever you donate, uh, I'm going to set aside uh, at a minimum 50% of that money to go to uh, veterans causes being a veteran myself I'm very keen on veteran-owned businesses and veteran causes um, you heard me in the last season interview uh, Corey Schaffer from mm-hmm. till Valhalla project uh, as of right now uh, that is going to be one of the focuses is helping them get more plaques out and using the money that y'all support me with to help fund plaques through them uh, There will be others. Right now, that is going to be the primary target. So, uh, set aside some of that to cover taxes on it. At least fifty percent is going to go to veteran issues, and uh, the other money is going to be set aside to do things like you know buy new microphones, improve soundproofing, things like that to make the show go better. Uh, You know, no pressure. The show is going to go on whether there's any any money donated or not. Uh, But if there is, I want you to know that that's how that is going to be use. Uh, The other great thing about the Anchor site is it links back to all the places where the show is hosted. Uh, So, you know, if you prefer to use uh, Google Podcasts, link is right there. You can go subscribe. If you use Overcast, link's right there. You can go subscribe. Spotify, Radio Public, Apple Podcasts, it's all right there. Um, So I think that covers the hosting changes. Uh, keeping with the veteran support theme, I'm still working with a couple of, uh, a couple of organizations. I will be doing commercials, if you will. Uh, but here's the difference. And this is why I hesitate to call them commercials. I'm going to be doing these for free for these veteran businesses. Um, I, I don't believe in taking money from them in sponsorship fees, Again, that's why uh, I like this fact that the support button is there. If support comes in, I want it to be because people genuinely love the show, uh, not because somebody wants to pay to get on and and play. Uh, So I'm working with a couple of businesses, so you will hear uh, some promotions. I'm not taking any money from them. My sole purpose is to help this veteran-owned organization uh, get wider reach and and, uh, succeed. So... If you know of a veteran-owned business uh, that is looking for some exposure, uh, please have them send me a message. Let's try out that message link, or you can use the burden.command at gmail.com. Those are really the big changes. Everything else is going to stay pretty much normal. Uh, I don't foresee any other changes coming. I think this format is going to be uh, the format going forward. Like I said, I don't think we're going to have to take another season break. Uh, You will notice in this season, uh, due to some of the great uh, interviews I had last season that I needed to kind of shuffle around a little bit, you will notice some of these are, uh, are a little, I don't want to say old, because they've not been published before, but they were recorded a long time ago. For instance, the interview that's coming up as soon as I'm done talking here with Dr. Alan Weiss is an excellent interview. We recorded it sometime back in February. Uh, the intent was to publish it in March, but for some reason, uh, well, not for some reason, uh, with the coronavirus stuff and the way some other guests came in and really hit on leading through uh, leading through disasters and crisis and all that, I had to shuffle the deck chairs a little bit, and Dr. Weiss' episode got pushed back until today. It's one of the reasons why I really wanted to uh, really wanted to have it as the first episode of, of season three, is so it gets some of the prominence it deserves, uh, but it's not pushed back any further, because Dr. Weiss, he does a really good job of talking about, uh, about fear and ego and perfection, and we had a really good conversation about how that can paralyze folks, and uh, I think it's actually right now is the perfect time for his episode to be coming out. So you will notice some that that sound a little old. And uh, for instance, in Dr. Weiss's episode, he talks about the economy uh, being a a zero unemployment economy. Well, that's changed a little bit with COVID. Uh, Chances are pretty good it'll go back to that once COVID finally decides to go away. But uh, that's just one instance. Uh, He makes some reference to the stock market. We know that's kind of been up and down through all this. So just know that you may hear some references that are, you know, going back as far as, say, six months or so ago. Uh, but again, a lot of new great guests. So I just wanted to prepare you for that. Anyway, I really think that is uh, that is it. Uh, I just want to say again, I appreciate every single one of you. Uh, please keep up with the uh, subscribing, the rating, and the reviewing. Uh, it's helping the show get traction. You know, not being a big public figure with books and TV shows and all that other good stuff. Uh, it, it has been a real slog growing the show, uh, but what I can say, and I'm very appreciative of, is the loyal fans I've had from the beginning who have helped and are still here and are still helping, I really, really appreciate it. You know, maybe some of that uh, support money, uh, I can start getting stuff like stickers and t-shirts and things like that made and, and uh, let you all be able to show some of that burden of command pride out there. Uh, With that, I'm going to let you get right into this episode, and uh, again, thank you. Really appreciate it, and enjoy the interview with Dr. Alan Weiss. All right, listeners, hello, and welcome to this episode of the Burden of Command podcast. Today, I've got a great guest with me. Uh, He's a consultant, speaker, and best-selling author who has been described by the New York Post as one of the most highly regarded independent consultants in America. His firm is Summit Consulting Group Incorporated, and they've attracted clients such as Merck, Hewlett-Packard, GE, Mercedes-Benz, and more than 500 other leading organizations. He's written 64 books, many of which have been included in university curricula and translated into over 15 languages. His newest book is titled "Fearless." Le- uh, <clears throat> his newest release is titled "Fearless Leadership: Overcoming Reticence, Procrastination and the Voices of Doubt Inside Your Head." My guest is none other than Dr. Alan Weiss. Dr. Weiss, thanks for joining us today.
1: Earl, thank you. it's nice to be
0: with you. Yeah, well. Uh, so I'm going to start you off where I start all of my guests. When you hear the term "burden of command, what does that mean to you?
1: It means being willing, uh, I think, to make tough decisions. Uh, You know, it's easy to make the easy decisions, but uh, I found that in organizations, and I've also worked with police and the military, you know, through my career, that um, the burden of command means the burden of being solitary and independent and uh, usually alone, and you have to make very tough decisions at times. That's what it means to me.
0: No, I, I like that. and. And I like your new book. Now, uh, full disclosure, I haven't had a chance to read it verbatim, uh, but I have had a chance to skim over it. A- and I like your your focus on, on fear. Uh, why did you decide to focus on fear in this book?
1: Many years ago, I started writing about how consultants should charge more. I wrote books like Value-Based Fees. And then I began asking myself why they weren't charging more. And I realized it was a case of low self-esteem, so I started writing Million Dollar Maverick, and I co-wrote Lifestorming with uh, Marshall Goldsmith, uh, and so on and so forth. But then I asked myself, why is there such low esteem out there, not only among consultants, but even among executives whom I've coached? And I think the reason is fear, and I decided I would attack fear.
0: Okay. Now, uh, so when you say that, so you're talking about, uh, you, well, you started off talking about fees, People are afraid that if they charge, you know, say $10,000 instead of $7,000, nobody's going to hire them because they're not worth that much money?
1: Well, it's more like 100000 instead of 70000 But the, the fact is that too many professionals charge by a time unit, you know, like a lawyer in six-minute increments, which is stupid and amateurish, because our value is not in the time we spend. Our value is in how we help our clients, how we improve their condition. And so uh, I found that uh, people had to have the ability to uh, explain this to their clients, to their prospects, and charge commensurately. Because if you, if you solve a major problem in five minutes, you're worth more than if it takes you three months to solve it.
0: I, I like that. And that uh, sounds to me kind of, you talk about real versus fabricated fears. So what are the difference between real and fabricated fears beyond the obvious? And, and how do those crop up in our daily lives?
1: Well, a real fear is when somebody has a gun or there's a tornado coming down the street or, uh, you know, you've uh, perhaps uh, afraid you you have the the new coronavirus or something. Those are real fears. Those are something to fear. Uh, But imagined fears are things like being afraid of public speaking or thinking you have writer's block or being afraid to walk into a buyer's office or to speak up at a meeting. And that's because people are basically protecting their ego. Uh, and they are afraid of their ego being bruised. So instead of being down in the cargo hold of the ship, it's out on the bow taking a beating from the wind and the rain.
0: Well, that, that ego is something else. It'll drive you crazy, won't it?
1: Of course, and, and uh, it's easily repaired, but people lead with it, and they're afraid to ask for the simplest things. Uh, they seek perfection uh, so that uh, no one can critique them. However, uh, you and I have never been on a perfect plane, or had a perfect meal or watched a perfect movie, and perfection kills excellence.
0: Uh, no, I love that. As, as a Marine, uh, that, that was one of the things we, we talked a lot about, the 70% solution and not getting paralyzed by the chase for perfection, because A, it's unattainable, and B, if you ever get close to it, well, you've already moved past the point where making a decision can really change things anyways. Now, the other thing we would always say, you know, is is fear... Uh, or excuse me, courage isn't an absence of fear; it's embracing the fear and continuing to operate anyway. You think that holds up the same in uh, in in the business world? I think it's true. I
1: would amend it to say that uh, it's not always fear that we're feeling. What we're feeling sometimes is anticipation, or we're feeling uncertainty, or we don't know how to look at ambiguity. And we translate that into fear. But these are rather normal human emotions. It's okay to be uncertain. It's okay to be undecided. But there's nothing to fear about that. Uh, it's a large part of everybody's day. And, in, you know, in over 30 years in this business, what I've seen is that the very best leaders are the leaders who are comfortable with ambiguity.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, that was, uh, you know, uh, this was one of the most decisive, if you will, uh, generals in World War II was, was Patton. But he was perfectly comfortable with ambiguity i mean he even had the famous quote you know don't tell your people what to do tell them what needs to be done and let them impress you with their brilliance and that takes a level of courage in and of itself because you know i mean there's a lot of room in interpretation there when you let a bunch of uh, board privates and uh, corporals do their own thing with a lack of word-by-word guidance listen
1: every great military leader has been comfortable with ambiguity from Hannibal crossing the Alps to Grant uh, keep pointing who kept pointing his army south. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. And you have to be comfortable with the uncertainty because no matter how good your plan is, you know 12 hours later something has ruined it. right And right. so you might as well go ahead and get something done.
0: Yeah, I mean because uh, I mean the truth is once you take action, you can always take corrective actions as things start going south, right?
1: And In fact, being light on your feet, being agile, uh, is a key attribute of great leaders.
0: Other than the ego piece, where do humans learn these fears from? Where do they kind of crop up? Well, there are overt and covert fears.
1: And the covert fears, that is the, the unrecognized fears, the unknown fears, they're, they're scaring you, but you can't really articulate them. Uh, they come from nurturing. They come from things your parents told you. You know, you never amount to anything. They come from things your siblings told you or how you grew up. And a lot of them require a therapeutic intervention because they're not, easily to, they're not easy to isolate. And that's okay. I'm a great believer in therapy. And I, I think that uh, we need to look into that when there's something holding us back, making us afraid we can't articulate. But the overt fears are things we can articulate and we develop phobias about them. You know, 99.9% of the spiders in the world can't hurt you. Yet people dread spiders because they've seen a tarantula or a, or a black widow. Even a tarantula won't really hurt you uh, if you don't bother it uh 95% of the people in the world uh probably hate snakes they can't stand snakes these are phobias but 90% of the snakes are harmless and so uh, we develop these uh, ridiculous irrational fears that we never let go of and consequently we never question them so they stay with us and though we
0: recognize them we haven't questioned their validity oh. Well, I mean, you you hit on it. Uh, spiders is my thing, and, and I know where my fear of spiders came from. I remember being a young kid, sitting in my uh, sitting my room, and I see this shadow on the floor. and I'm like, "What is this shadow?" And it kept like moving and catching my eye. And finally, I look up, and the light had me right over my head. And I look up, and I'm, like dangling maybe six inches in front of my face was this big like wolf spider kind of thing. And it scared, I was eight, nine years old, scared to live in daylights out of me. And ever since then, I've been scared of it. But it's funny you mentioned tarantulas. I lived in Albuquerque, New Mexico for a while. And what I noticed was tarantulas actually didn't bother me. Like I could see them. I knew they were there. And I kind of realized my fear wasn't necessarily the spider. It was not knowing that something was there.
1: Let me tell you something. I'll tell you two things. The first is that, when we're young, we fear that there are monsters under the bed. And some of us get up the courage to shine a flashlight under the bed and see there's no monster. Uh, But that doesn't mean there's never been a monster under the bed. There might have been on the days you didn't look. But what we do know is, if there were a monster under the bed, it never hurt us. And so the monster is not there to do us any harm. Maybe it's just getting a good night's sleep, you know? The second thing is, uh, when my son was much younger, we were at an amusement park, and he didn't want to go in the funhouse. And I said to him, Jason, don't be afraid of the dark. And he said to me, I'm not afraid of the dark. I'm afraid of what might be in the dark, sort of similar to what you said. But then I pointed to people coming out of the fun house in these cars laughing. And I said, do you think they'd be laughing if there were danger in there? And so we have to get used to looking at empirical evidence and not living on these phobias and fears that we have.
0: Yeah, I mean, again, I I love it. One of my favorite authors is is Stephen Pressfield, and in his book, Gates of Fire, he goes in depth... And he admits that he kind of invented this. Uh, there's no direct reference in the source material he used for the Spartans, but there was this idea of phobologia, as he called it, the, the study of fear, and how you'll know, come into grips with the, those different types of fears and what you just said, realizing that worst-case scenario, they come true. What happens in that instance helps you not be afraid of those fears anymore.
1: I, I agree. That's right. But you have to confront them. See, you have to find the cause of your fears. That's what I was saying earlier. You can't just say, I'm going to get rid of this fear. You have to say, what's causing me to be fearful? And then you have to deal with the cause. And, and that's why. And you take chunks. You know, people who are afraid to fly, they tell them, we'll take short trips. Uh, I tell people, if you're afraid to talk to the board of directors, talk to one director, one-on-one first, and then talk to two and so forth. So you can chunk these things. But if you, if you do it well, you'll overcome the basic fear.
0: Yeah. Well and, and that brings us to uh, you, you talk about the three F's of paralyzed leadership fight, flight, and fright. Talk about those a little bit.
1: Well traditionally we've talked about fight or flight, but I've introduced fright into that. You know, if you think of a deer caught in the headlights, the deer knows it can't fight what's coming. Deers don't really deer don't really fight. Um, and it, it's um it could take flight and get out of the way of the car, but it's so frightened that it's paralyzed and it usually gets killed. And people in business are the same way. This fright paralyzes them and they don't make decisions that are appropriate for their careers or appropriate for their companies or anything else. You know, I'm convinced that's what happened at Volkswagen and Wells Fargo and all these other places of just massive, massive cheating and scandal. People were basically frightened.
0: Yeah, I mean, and, and I like that, you know, most people are probably familiar with the term analysis paralysis. It's just kind of essentially what you're talking about here with fright, right?
1: Right. and But it's more than that because we're not really rationally analyzing anything. I mean, if you rationally analyze, you can get something done. But fright is irrational. And uh, that's why we have to find the causes of these fears because otherwise we, we just get frightened and we react poorly. And see, fear masks talent, just like depression masks talent or guilt masks talent. And so people who are fearful whether that fear is directly expressed or not, are not performing at their highest potential. They're not as productive as they can be. And when you have a lot of people like that in an organization, you have a productivity problem.
0: And, and how, in your experiences, how much of that fear is self-created and how much of that fear is created by the culture of the organization?
1: Almost all fear is self-created. We use culture as a cop-out. You know, people say, well, I'm intimidated. The fact is that people can't intimidate you. You allow yourself to be intimidated. Now, that might sound harsh, but it's true. Mm -hmm. It's the same way I can't motivate you. Motivation's intrinsic. It has to come from you, not me. And so people like to blame the boss. They like to blame the culture. But a culture is simply that set of beliefs which governs behavior. And so what are the beliefs in the organization? And what are your beliefs that are governing your behavior? If you don't like your boss, get out. You know, because I'll tell you something. This is a zero-unemployment economy. There are jobs all over. And so if you're unhappy with your boss, you're unhappy with people around you, get out, but stop staying there and being fearful and being less than what you could really be.
0: Oh, I love that, because that, that goes back to your fright. You're, you're afraid of the boss, so you don't do anything, but you're afraid of what would happen if you didn't have a job, so you're afraid to leave.
1: Well, you see, the, the problem is, if you're afraid of action and afraid of inaction, you're pretty useless. And if you look at procrastination, procrastination is a manifestation of fear. And what happens is, People who procrastinate are less afraid of being critiqued for taking so long than they are of actually doing something and being critiqued for having done it wrong. And that's why people procrastinate. It's a question of what they're more afraid of.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, so this is interesting. Like like I, I, uh, I like I said, I, I've skimmed the book, uh, but I, I like where you're going with fear. And I think most people are probably asking themselves right now with, okay, you you mentioned how can I... How can I deal with you know, fear of flying or fear, fear of spiders or those those kind of biggies? But in what we're just talking about here now, what does a person have to do? What process do they need to go through to be able to come to grips with one or two of those fears and get out of the inaction mode into an action mode?
1: Well, what they have to do is they have to find out the cause of their fear and see if it's rational or not. If it's irrational, dismiss it. If it's rational, do something about it. I'll give you two quick examples. I think it'll help. A fear of public speaking is talked about all the time and it's garbage. Mm-hmm. It's a myth and if you think about it rationally Nobody in an audience wants to go home and say well. I just had a great hour I watched a speaker go down in flames, you know, I heckled and I made them miserable Healthy people don't say that you know people who are outside of, of a psychopath or a sociopath don't say that But so why get up there and say oh my god? Oh my god I'm so worried about this because the audience is with you the audience wants a success so that's the rational approach to that. Now, I'm going to tell you a different story, which is just as powerful. I was coaching a guy who said to me, my problem is I get so nervous when I first walk out on the stage, the first 10 minutes, that I perspire so much. I only wear dark blue shirts and dark blue suits because you can't see the perspiration. After about 10 minutes, I'm okay. But the first 10 minutes of murder, can you help me? And I said, does it happen all the time? And he said, no, not all the time, about 90% of the time. I said, "Uh, is there a distinction about the other 10%? He said, well, if I'm talking to the people backstage about the sound checks or the lighting or I'm talking to somebody else about uh, what's going to happen after I speak, uh, I hear my name called, I hear myself introduced, I go out there, I'm fine. I said to him, you're spending that 10 minutes worrying, but if you're preoccupied, you don't worry. So here's what I want you to do. Every time you go to a speaking assignment, start to talk to people in the audience who are being seated. Go backstage, talk to the technicians. Do something to talk to people until you actually hear your name addressed, announced. And that took care of it.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, like, uh, more often than not, that that stress about the fear is more more impactful than any anything that could actually happen. Uh, I, I'm, I'm kind of the same way as your friend there, or when I first started talking. Uh, what got me over the hump uh, was I went out on stage one day, and the microphone wasn't working. And I didn't, I didn't really realize it because I've got a kind of a loud, booming, caring voice anyways. And when I got through, then somebody told me the mic wasn't working and it was just this mental thing about, hey, I got through that with a malfunction and it still went well. If everything's working fine, I got nothing to worry about. So for me, it took something actually going wrong and overcoming it for that kind of nervousness to go away because... I was worrying about what could go wrong.
1: Well, see, my point is that you, you were lucky that this happened that way. But my point is we shouldn't allow these things to continue. We should take action to stop them.
0: So um, you, you have something else in your book that you talk about, about when fear manifests itself even when you think you aren't afraid. How do we fool ourselves into feeling that we're not afraid if fear is present?
1: What happens is that uh, we believe that we're acting normally, but our normal really involves fear. So, for example, I was working in a very large pharmaceutical company and uh, four or five of the really top lieutenants in the company were afraid to go to the CEO and present something because the CEO was very bright, very powerful and had a very, very quick temper. Now. They didn't admit they were afraid. What they were saying is, we have to structure this in such a way that it's acceptable. We have to be careful to anticipate objections. Uh, we have to make sure that we hold our ground and so forth. But it was really a question of fear. Now, I knew this CEO and I knew if you delivered a logical, scientific-type argument to him, he was a physician uh, originally, that he would listen. Uh, but if you delivered something that was just an opinion off the top of your head, he would become short-tempered. So. This is a very rational situation, and you adjust to the person you want to
0: influence. They didn't admit they were afraid, but they were, and it impacted their performance. Mm. Well, what I like about that is it goes into some of the things that, that we talk about uh, you know, in Marine Corps leadership was know yourself and seek self-improvement, and know your team and look out for their welfare, and we always extend that to the leader, too. It sounds to me like in this instance— you knew what type of person the CEO was and what made them tick, and it was that lack of information from the employee that made it such a fearful situation.
1: I don't think it was a lack of information. It was a lack of the correct analysis. You know, Mm -mm. I I don't believe anyone is damaged unless they prove it to me. So I never walk into a client or a customer or a meeting and assume people are damaged. You have to prove to me you're damaged. Uh, But I assume everyone is healthy, and I treat people as rational, healthy beings. What is the threshold effect? The threshold effect occurs when our belief system, no matter what it is, is overwhelmed by normative pressure. I'll tell you what that means. You're an upstanding citizen, you lead a good life, but you're in the middle of a riot, and people are stealing things from a store, and you suddenly find that you're in the store taking something too. It's the normative pressure of your peers that has overcome your own belief system, which is it's wrong to steal. Uh, I know you're familiar with uh, uh, brave soldiers who get up and run because everybody around them is running. And the normative pressure overcomes their own ability to say, I need to stay here and defend this position. And conversely, we know of soldiers who stay and defend positions even though they would like to run because everyone around them is. So the threshold effect occurs when the normative pressure overcomes your own belief system.
0: So it's sort of like some of those experiments you you uh, you hear about where you know you get on a uh, get on an elevator and everybody's facing the back of the elevator, so eventually you turn and face the back. We're really influenced by everybody else around us.
1: That's correct, and uh, and, and normative pressure can be innocent, as the example you just described, or it can be very very deliberate. You know, I, I started my career in prudential insurance, and. They used to come around and say, uh, do you want to be the only one who prevents us from hitting our uh, quota for the blood drive? And you'd say to yourself, well, gee, I don't want to be the only holdout. Well, they said the same thing to everybody, and they used it as a manipulative technique. And, and that's what normative pressure can do, too, if it's not, uh, if it's not used honestly.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, you, when you said that, it just hit me that that's, uh, if you look at Cotter's eight-step change model, that's the first one is kind of create a, an impetus for change, and a lot of times... That impetus for change is fear-based, right?
1: Right, and it shouldn't be because people believe that to sell you should find a pain point and people believe that you can get people to change if they fear something. It's all temporary. It's all short-lived. You know, people change because of what's in their best interest. And what you have to do is reach out and determine what the other person's best interest is. I mean, really, that's the basis of a sale. You find out what the customer will benefit from and then you convince the customer that you have it.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, that makes perfect sense so when you put it that way, because maybe that's the reason we have such a problem with change as a race uh, of people is we start change from a fear-based proposition.
1: But essentially, there's change every day. day—you know, Every day brings changes, and we get used to them. We, we deal with them. And, and again, if you, if you look at the empirical reality, if you look at the evidence, we, go, we get into traffic jams we didn't anticipate, and we find another route. Uh, the weather turns against us, and we have a plan B for our activity. We go inside, or we change the date. Change happens every day, and most of us successfully deal with it on that basis.
0: Well, let me ask you this question. Uh, in your experience, how often is somebody's worst-case scenario the way things actually play out? Less
1: than 1% of the time. People are catastrophists, and I often ask people today, are you Paul Revere or Chicken Little? You know, the the market's going crazy. Now, as we're talking, the market is suffering a very bad day today, but the market's still at stratospheric heights. And uh, people can't wait to say, well, it can't last, it can't last. People said a year ago that Apple had seen its best days, that the iPhone demand was down and uh, the stock's gonna tank and you should get out of it. Well, Apple went up about 100% last year. 100%. Uh, because people are catastrophists. They assume the worst. They don't look at the real evidence. And the real evidence is that Apple hasn't, Extraordinary brand, iPhone use is very big. Their business in the in apps is very big, and people look for the next big breakthrough to come from Apple, and that's the reality.
0: Yeah, no, it's 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 crazy because this is the thing that I, I run into a lot working with leaders that, you know, they want to do this, they want to do that, but they're always afraid of doing. They're always afraid of doing the right thing, for fear of the thing that could happen. You know, for instance. Uh, you know, I'll give you an example. I was working with a leader who had a, a uh, I won't say an environment, but they had an issue of bullying and harassment in their organization. Well, they had all these things that they wanted to do, but they were afraid to do any of them because of the potential legal repercussions where the, the staff is begging, do something about this. Now, I get that there's some ownership from the staff of being able to take care of this of themselves, but I just saw this leader who was too afraid to take action. Like, I guess we're back to fright again because of what could happen if they just fired this person, right? They get hit with a wrongful termination suit or whatever. And, and just seeing that fear, that led, we talked about culture a little bit ago, but that kind of led to this perception that the culture was toxic because the leader didn't do anything. So it was kind of this self-fulfilling prophecy, if you will.
1: I'll go back to the first question you asked me. You know, what's the burden of leadership? And and what you have to understand is that uh, when you have to fire someone, you're usually improving their lives. They've become a pariah. They're not productive. They're unhappy. And when you fire someone, you're actually helping them. You have to have that kind of an attitude.
0: Well, yeah, and you you gotta you gotta be willing to take that burden on. And it's, uh you talk about these ten behaviors that help establish resilience, so uh, talk about those a little bit now.
1: Well, we don't have time to go into all of them, but I'll just give an example. You know, resilience is the ability to rebound uh, when things go wrong and, and to uh, get back on a success track. And I think there are what I call hyper traits in my books, learnable skills that people can use. So, for example, one of them is language. And the better use you have of language, the more you can influence situations, the more you can turn situations around. Another is a refusal to listen to unsolicited feedback. So unsolicited feedback is for the sender. It turns you into a ping pong ball. But solicited feedback from people you respect is usually feedback you can use. So if you follow, if you develop those kinds of traits, something goes wrong, you can recover. Another key part of of resilience, though, is you need to isolate negatives and generalize positives. So if you don't make a sale, you don't tell yourself you're a lousy marketer. You say, on this day, at this time, with this particular buyer, he chose not to buy. You don't say, I'm a lousy marketer. On the other hand, if you make a sale, you don't say, I got lucky you say, I've become a very good marketer. Now, for people listening to this who have children, this is extraordinarily important because if your kid makes a bad play on the athletic field, you don't say to the kid, God, you're really clumsy. You say, that was a tough kick. Nobody could have really done a good job with that. It's a one-time thing. And if the kid comes home uh, with a history test score of 95, you don't say you got lucky, uh, at least, uh, but you didn't do as well as your sister. You say, you're turning into quite a scholar. So one of the keys to resilience is to isolate negatives and generalize positives.
0: I like that. Isolate negatives and generalize positives. Now, how, how does somebody walk that fine line of doing that without sounding almost Pollyanna-ish, that nothing's bad, everything's great?
1: Well, see, here's the, here's the key. Sounding Pollyanna-ish to whom? Stop worrying about what other people think. Just worry about what you think. And if you can engage in that and improve yourself and become resilient, who the hell cares what anybody else thinks? That's my feeling.
0: Now, hey, I, I I like it. I mean, that's 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 good feedback. I really do. I like that. Um, all right, so you also talk about maintaining a fearless demeanor for your future. Uh, how does that process work?
1: Well, if fearlessness, fearlessness is something you can achieve and is helping you now understand the fact that as I said things are going to be changing every day the future is not going to be today the future is going to be different and so you have to maintain the process of fearlessness even though the content may change we make a mistake that we look at today as a photograph that we think was true yesterday and will be true tomorrow and we're actually in a movie Uh, and so as a result of this this very poor outlook this poor perspective We're experiencing presentism today, where people believe that today's mores and today's cultural effects uh, should be uh, used with people who lived, you know, 100 years ago or people who did something 30 years ago in college. And they apply this presentism to the past as though people should have acted differently. And in some cases, maybe they should have acted differently by current standards, but the fact is the standards then were somewhat different. I'm not excusing the behavior, but I'm saying you have to understand it. And going into the future, people think it'll just be an extension of what it is today. The future is not an extension of what it is today. And that's why you have to learn the process and not be caught up in assuming the content will be the same. You know, the the telegraph changed communication, but the telephone uh, did away with the telegraph. You know, airplanes did away with ocean travel, by and large, and and killed long-distance trains. Uh, Those kinds of, of disruptions and startling right turns take place. And they change us all usually for the good, but very dramatically.
0: Yeah, well, and in, in with all of the, you know, it seems like you can't turn around and or turn on the news these days without seeing some other scandals you kind of alluded to there that so, a picture of somebody doing something 30 years ago, you know, why is it that those those individuals are afraid to essentially say exactly what you said? Hey, yeah, that was a dumb move, but, you know, back then it was normal.
1: Well, they don't say it because of normative pressure, which we talked about before. And so, you know, a, a year or so ago, we had this ice challenge where people dumped ice over their head to support a charity. Uh, it probably would have been much better if they gave money to the charity and didn't, didn't just dump ice over their heads as a lot of them did. Uh, today, we have the Me Too movement. And the Me Too movement is based on very legitimate and very serious crimes uh, mm-hmm. uh, against women, and but also against some men. Uh, however, uh, not everyone should be victimized by, by Me Too. Not long ago, Brown University expelled a male student who was accused of rape uh, without due process, uh, without a trial, and he sued and he won. And they had to pay him and he's, he went back to school. He didn't go back to Brown, he went somewhere else, but they would have had to take him back. And so normative pressure uh, can often be positive and helpful uh, people come out; they join a cause. Other people are engaged in it. I can be honest now, but can also be very, very harmful uh, if we turn that kind of normative pressure against just anyone. You know, we have a, a new age of witch trials.
0: Yeah, uh, you know, and and I'm glad you know I'm glad you brought that up because uh, you know there has been a lot of discussion about Me Too and and the uh, the the good it's done, but but the negative. I mean, I think it was Harvard Business Review wrote a uh, article in the past. Couple weeks, maybe a couple months, talking about how uh, you know mentorship for for women uh, has taken a hit since the Me Too movement kicked in, because fear has taken that to the the other extreme, where people are afraid to, well, to to put themselves in a situation where they could become a uh, a part of the Me Too movement in whatever. Sense of the word that it plays out.
1: Well, listen, I'm the president of the ballet in Providence. And we have a wonderful company and wonderful people. Uh, but if I'm going to talk to a female dancer alone, uh, I'd be crazy. I have somebody else in the room. It's just a wise precaution today. It doesn't impact the nature of the discussion. Nobody objects. And unfortunately, it's, it's almost a requirement today. I don't do it with a female board member. We're on a different basis. But certainly with a female dancer, I would. And we all have to make those decisions today because uh, of the normative pressure that's around us.
0: Yeah, and that goes back, uh, again, in the military. Uh, they would tell us kind of the same thing you just said. If you if you don't do that and you catch a complaint, it's your fault for not taking the precautionary measures. Uh, now, some people see that as a negative for the female, but it's, it's there for both people's protection, right?
1: Well, I think what's often happened in the military is that... Um... A crime has been committed, a massacre, an inap- you know an inappropriate action, a murder, uh, and other people have either joined in or they've joined in the cone of silence. And mm. that's the normative pressure. Years ago, they talked about the police having this blue line or blue wall where they wouldn't turn in corruption of their own colleagues. And of course, that's just wrong. And we've overcome that to some extent, but not completely.
0: Well, and that goes back to... to- having the, the fortitude to do what is right because it's right uh, and not being afraid of those outcomes.
1: Well, that's right. That's fearlessness. You're exactly right.
0: All right. Well, you know, I mean, I think uh, we, we've we done a really good job of hitting on, on all the cylinders, I believe. So uh, let me ask you the question that, that I always like to ask as we start moving towards closeout. Is there anything that we didn't cover that you would like to hit on?
1: Well, I, I think you did a fine job, Earl. I would just say this sort of in summary, and that is that a fearlessness has to come from within. You don't sit in a fearlessness class. You can be coached. I've certainly coached people in it, uh, but it has to be a habit. It has to be a way of life. And you have to ask yourself, what's the worst case here? And the worst case
0: is usually not nearly as bad as you fear. That That's powerful. I, I love, you know, again, I love that. Uh, and, and, you know, that doesn't mean that you go through life being reckless and not caring about the impact you have on other people. You certainly have to weigh that in the equation, but you also have to weigh your self-interest and, and the things that matter to you, right? Well, Alan, I really appreciate you joining us. Again, uh, listeners, his book, Fearless Leadership, Overcoming Reticence, Procrastination, and the Voices of Doubt Inside Your Head. Uh, I'll have a link to that on the show notes for this show. Uh, I'll have a link to Dr. Weiss's uh, website. If they want to get a hold of you, work with you, anything like that, is there a good way to get a hold of you, or is it just on the website?
1: Best thing is to go to the website, alanweiss.com, where there are hundreds of free articles and audio and video, and you can sign up for all of my free newsletters as well.
0: Outstanding. Well, again, thank you very much for spending the time with us. I really appreciate it. It was uh, very insightful, and and I hope uh, my listeners walk away from this with a newfound respect for fear and all that it entails.
1: Thanks, Earl. I appreciate you having me on. Yeah. And
0: listeners, thank you for joining us in this conversation. As always, if you have any feedback for me, uh, burden.command at gmail.com. Make sure you get on there and uh, like, share, review the show, uh, help it get the visibility that it deserves for great guests like Dr. Weiss here. Uh, If you have any ideas for guests for me, you can hit me up there, burden.command at gmail.com. With that, I just want to thank you very much for your time with us on this episode. Uh, Keep those shields up, and I look forward to speaking with you again in the next episode. Electric Ass.